0: There are two really fundamental, bedrock, cardinal rules of liberal science, the constitution of knowledge. I'll use them interchangeably for now. One is no one gets the final say, the last word, and the second is no one gets personal authority. That's the empirical rule. Three big payoffs in the real world are knowledge, freedom, and above all, peace. Social media is the shiny new object that people want to talk about, Um, but the tactics that we're talking about, canceling, firehose of falsehood, mass disinformation, um, repetition, heuristic, and so forth, these are old, and they can be used through any type of channel. One of the great motivators in scientific enterprises is the desire to, quote, get that son of a bitch. That's David Hull.
1: Hi, hi, welcome, welcome. This is the From the New World podcast. Today, I'm bringing you another compelling episode. This week, we're speaking with Jonathan Rauch, the author of The Constitution of Knowledge, Kindly Inquisitors, The Happiness Curve, and plenty of other extremely intriguing books. He's had an interesting perspective from the inside of academia and journalism, writing all the way back in 1993, prescient books and articles about the problems we face today. You might not agree with all of his points. I certainly don't, as you'll be able to tell uh, when I actually begin the interview. But regardless of whether you agree or disagree with Jonathan, he is able to articulate clearly and build his arguments from the ground up and uncover the basic axioms, ideas, and arguments that structure how he thinks. And that's a wonderful thing, because agree with him or disagree with him You'll need to know those arguments and know them hopefully in the most clearly laid out way if you're going to try to persuade him, persuade people like him, or simply to cut a political deal, a useful part of any practical process. We discuss his book The Constitution of Knowledge, Scientific Institutions, Progress, Donald Trump, Cognitive Biases, Game Theory, Egregores, Peace, Disinformation, and early childhood education. As always, one of the most wonderful things about this podcast is the contrast that I can set up, is that I can have Brian Kaplan and then Jeremy Carl, that I can have Jonathan Rauch and then John Eskonsis, to have an incredibly interesting and unexpected lineup for you every week, and part of that is making sure my guests have a good time. Of course, I can make sure they have a good time while they're doing the podcast, but I can't control anything about them after. So if you want more people answering the types of questions that I ask, exploring the types of ideas and lanes that I really like going down, then please be respectful to any guests who come on. And without further ado, enjoy the show. Here's Jonathan Rauch. All right, we are live. So has the power of journalism increased or decreased in the past 20 years?
0: if you may if you mean mainstream journalism, it has decreased. If you mean um, non mainstream journalism and especially conservative and alternative media, then it has increased.
1: interesting. So something that actually really stood out to me and that i that I think was not obvious to me at all from reading your book uh, is that you said on the econ talk podcast that the constitution of knowledge, uh, what you describe in your book of the same name, is not just is not just an ideal, but is it is a kind of active practice, right? So, what is the kind of uh, what is the kind of like lifestyle practice of the constitution of knowledge? What does that look like in the kind of daily life of people who are uh, who are living according to its values?
0: Can I start by saying what the constitution of knowledge is and why we care about it?
1: Awesome! Yeah, that would be great.
0: So every society, I'll do this really fast because I know you're good at drilling down wherever you want (laughs) to. Every society needs a way to come together on certain understandings of at least public matters. You know, If people individually believe in Zoroastrianism or the Zodiac, that's fine. But for making public decisions like uh, whether to go to war, for example, um, societies need some kind of understanding, some notion of where truth comes from. And if they don't have one, they can devolve into schism, warfare, stagnation, oppression, authoritarianism. And this is pretty much how it went very schematically until three or four hundred years ago um, when we saw the emergence of uh, what developed into modern science, journalism, law, and government. Much more reality-based, much more systematic, and much more truthful, peaceful, less oppressive, less violent. And that's because of the emergence of a constitution of knowledge, which is a system of rules and institutions that we rely on to develop a public understanding about what's fact and what's not fact, what's reality and what's unreal. It is a real constitution. It's not written down, it's like the British constitution, which is unwritten, but it is. Real inst- real rules, real institutions, you can name them, you can write them down. They are things that we have to do in order to be part of the reality-based community. Um, things that we spend years learning and mastering and inculcating in school, for example. Um, and that's the constitution of knowledge. It is our most important social system. It elevates us from a bunch of tribes running around with separate realities, going to war over who we think God is or who's the actual which, to the society that we have with fantastic depth of research and objective knowledge. So having said all that, I forgot your question about the constitution of knowledge, for which I apologize.
1: Right. So my interpretation of it, reading the book, is that the constitution of knowledge is, uh, is a kind of set of principles, a set of Uh, a set of ideals almost, but I was actually listening to you on several podcasts. And something that really stood out to me is that that isn't, that isn't my, my first interpretation was, was wrong. That isn't quite what you mean, that it's more of a practice. It's more of a routine, something that people get used to. And to me, I think a great way of explaining it to my audience is just, what are the kind of things that you do in sort of your daily life, both kind of you personally, if you want, or just people in general who uh, adhere to the constitution of knowledge? What do you do in order to uh, really kind of live those practices?
0: Well, I think of it as not just things you do. I think of it as norms and the institutions where those norms live, which is actually where the bulk of the work gets done. And that's Everything from the journals and newspapers to the conferences and the protocols and the what I think you've called meta-scientific organizations and all of that stuff. But the things you have to do, well, for example, my field is journalism. And the things I was trained to do are to double source when possible, um, to correct errors, report to your superiors and then correct errors if you make them to attempt to be factually accurate by checking everything in the article, uh, to make sure you include points of views, which are not necessarily obvious, um, to um, there's you know, tons more. Everything, you know, it's like not paying sources. These rules had to be invented. They did not exist in the 19th century when the newspapers were just full of hyperpartisan partisan fake news. People just made stuff up, H.L. Mencken greatest journalist of his time, used to brag about, you know, making stuff up and putting it in the paper. Around 1915, the American Society of Newspaper Editors forms. First thing it does is issue a code of conduct. And the code of conduct says things like what I just said, like, be accurate. (laughs) Unethical to be inaccurate. Run corrections if you're wrong. Be fair with some notion of what that is. Um, those become the rules that undergird reality-based journalism. In science, you seem, science broadly defined, what I call liberal science, which includes you know humanities and social sciences and even stuff like literary criticism and whatever. But these are rules like make arguments against arguments, not individuals, adduce evidence, um, show your work, um, explain your reasons. To the extent your work can be replicated, that's allowed and encouraged. And if it fails to replicate, you need to deal with that, or maybe give up your hypothesis. Um, all of the things, again, that we take for granted and that actually take years of inculcation in school, and academic training, are the constitution of knowledge. Uh, same in law. Law is also a key part of the reality-based community. The idea of a fact. Originates in law, not in science. It predates law because the late medieval courts needed facts in order to issue rational opinions. You know, like, right, <laughs> did Smith really steal Jones's donkey or did the donkey wander off? Um, so they have oppositional systems for presenting briefs and evidence, and that all gets weighed. So all of that is a constitution of knowledge.
1: And a relationship that I'm Notron of course this is a very big topic is what relationship Christianity and religion in general uh, has to the constitution of knowledge right on one hand there have been certainly uh, a large share of religious wars maybe they're a reaction to that right on the other hand i think the kind of christian universalism as at least compared to what came before it I think the argument that that paves the way for at least a kind of broader liberal science, that's also, that's also somewhat compelling to me. So do you think, uh, do you think that that connection is one that can be drawn?
0: I'm not a scholar of Christianity. Uh, there certainly is a body of the literature on history and sociology of science that shows how science grows out of some of the groundwork laid by by Christianity and universality, the notion of one God, the, one of the great breakthroughs of the constitution of knowledge is there's only one reality. You mm. can't have, you can't have separate realities that spin off in their own in their own separate world. We all have to basically work in the same world, which means we all have to be able to look at each other's arguments and replicate each other's experiments. So arguably some of that comes out of Christianity that said, The proximate cause of the rise of the constitution of knowledge has a lot to do with the religious, unceasing religious warfare, oppression, inquisition. Um, At one point, some estimates say that in the wars of religion of the 16th and 17th centuries, that possibly a third of the population of what's now Germany was slaughtered over fights over religious doctrine. John Locke. Oh, my goodness. (laughs) Yeah, John Locke, who's the fountainhead of the epistemology of the constitution of knowledge, as he is the fountainhead of political liberalism, self-consciously rises up saying, you know, there's, there's got to be a better way to do this than just killing each other. Core of the constitution of knowledge, as the philosopher Karl Popper put it, this is so smart, I did not make it up, is that we kill our hypotheses instead of each other which is a breakthrough in human affairs. You know, we used to deal with bad hypotheses by killing the people who had them or ostracizing them or throwing them in jail or whatever. Uh, Locke comes along and says, no, error is inherent. um, And it's not even bad. You need to make mistakes in order to find knowledge. So how are we going to do that in a structured, organized, and productive way? And it turns out the way you do that is setting up a gigantic network of people constantly contesting each other's ideas. And that's how we get here.
1: Right. This actually just occurred to me. How familiar are you with Gerard's uh, idea of the scapegoat?
0: You know, actually, I think I've heard you mention it on a podcast. Is that possible?
1: Mm, Yes, I've definitely mentioned it before, uh, although there are podcasts that go uh, much deeper into it. But the main idea is that people or societies assign a kind of designated figure that, that might be a King, that might be a human sacrifice in, uh, in uh, Christianity, there's an internal scapegoat, which is Jesus Christ uh, where when you have basically these, um, these comp- these different realities that people are living in these kind of tribes or not literal kind of tribes but basically these like uh, these groups these extended families if if one group hurts another then there's an expectation of revenge there's an expectation of some kind of sacrifice and that what the scapegoat does in these societies is that it absorbs that sacrifice and to me I think you can see. Uh, the constitution of knowledge as shifting that sacrifice from uh, one of human life altogether to one of like ideas, right? So you have these ideas that are now taking the role and are like genuinely proven false, right? And they're, they're proven false. And you, you put so much emphasis on this, right? Like if you've ever watched the kind of uh, university of uh, Chicago economics department, it's uh, quite uh I think those ideas are quite effectively scapegoated, uh, are quite effectively um, visited upon. And that, that kind of procedure, that kind of, uh, I don't want to call it ritual because it's more than that, right? But that kind of practice uh, kind of absorbs the same tension and the same conflict that you would have otherwise had with, uh, with, with these scapegoats or these conflicts across history.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I guess I'm not sold on that. Um, although there's something to it inherent in the notion of, of punishing ideas instead of the humans who have them. Um, I see that kind of scapegoating as, as less rational than we try to make the scientific process actually be. I mean, I, I don't think we all sort of circle and point our fingers and chant against astrology. Even after it's been proved wrong, I think one of the one of the great innovations of science actually is that you can be wrong and life just goes on uh, you're not eternally shamed, you're not driven out of polite society. People just say, "Oh well, you know Chow's paper didn't hold up, but we'll see what what he says in the next paper." Uh, one of the things that I think that's well maybe we'll get to this um, that's breaking down to some extent in parts of modern academia is we do see the rise of something more like a religious anti-scapegoating mentality where people say this idea is just terrible and horrible. It should not be discussable. If you try to discuss it, we shame or expel you. So to me, um, that kind of thinking would probably be antithetical to what we're trying to do in liberal science.
1: Right. I think that that, yeah. So the argument here is I think a little deeper or maybe not. I, I think you're right in that certainly there's no kind of like, you know, you, you don't take the, you don't take the rejected, you don't take the rejected paper and like burn it on a stake or anything like that. But the place where this is going is that I think that kind of having, having a back and forth and having, having sort of, I don't want to say symbolic victories because once again, I don't think, I, I think they're, they're like mostly, mostly like you want to have, have true victories, right? You want to have real, real uh, times when you uh, preserve ideas uh, that are correct and, you know, uh, get rid of ideas that are, that are false. I don't think it's, I think it's much more than symbolic, but that basically having a mechanism for this type of conflict uh that is that is um both creating legitimacy in a society and simultaneously very importantly uh not killing people that that is that that is something that is uh that is something that is important to how uh how it's at least able to maintain itself
0: yeah i just don't see that that really maps onto scapegoating. I think it's, it's more like, um, it's more like liberalism. What we're talking about here in the constitution of knowledge, as well as American style, liberal democracy, the U S constitution, as well as markets, the three great liberal systems we depend on is the attempt to substitute, substitute rules for rulers and processes for outcomes. And, um, I think that I don't really think that maps onto sort of traditional notions about scapegoating. So I don't think that would be a particularly productive way to to think about it. Now I guess maybe anthropologists look at things like that and how societies function at that level. But we're really trying not to, as liberals, we're really trying to abstract from notions of, for example, blame.
1: Right. So How how does this uh, manifest in the kind of practical world, right? Just just for the audience, I know you you wrote about this in the book, but what are what's some of the payoff of uh, of liberal science, lowercase L liberal science?
0: Wow, well, where to begin? Should we talk the the three big payoffs in the real world are knowledge, freedom, and above all, peace. And taking them in reverse order, if you and I disagree, even about something profound, I'm not allowed to settle that by silencing you, killing you, um, peremptorily ending your career so that you'll be scared of me. I'm going to have to convince third parties that I'm right and you're wrong. And in order to do that, I'm going to have to do a lot of stuff. Um In a pretty structured way, I'm going to have to adduce evidence and arguments, and so my energies are going to be absorbed in fulfilling my obligations to that process and and so are yours. You're going to be responding in the same way, whether it's you know dueling op ed pieces or at an academic conference or papers or whatever. Raush is wrong, Chow is right, and so forth. That turns out to be a productive way to channel the energy of conflict, which is fundamental in humans. Um, it is not a productive way, of course, for you to imprison or kill me because you can't, or for me to silence you and drive you out of the tribe to your possible death. Those <laughs> things result in war and schism. Um, creed conflicts still occur. You know, There's some very nasty conflicts every day in silence, excuse me, in science. There was one recently that Atlantic Magazine had a really fun article about about a very vicious interpersonal conflict over um, the question of what really killed the dinosaurs. Apparently there are people now who dissent to the asteroid hypothesis and the asteroid people don't like that. They're claiming that the dissenters are not even doing real science and the other people then called the first people sons of bitches. Um, it is in fact the case, according to the late sociologist of science. Um, oh man, it's gonna fly out of my head, but, but it's in fact the case that one of the great motivators in scientific enterprises is the desire to quote, get that son of a bitch. That's David Hull. So (laughs) you got this conflict, but we deal with it constructively. And that means we don't have creed wars that are violent anymore. It means we don't settle things that way. Um, It means we don't have the social schisms, at least we shouldn't. So that's, that's the number one problem that got solved. The number two problem that got solved is freedom. Um, the, there are two really fundamental bedrock, cardinal rules of liberal science, the constitution of knowledge. I'll use them interchangeably for now. One is no one gets the final say, the last word. And the second is no one gets personal authority. That's the empirical rule. So if you're going to establish your point, um, you can establish it, but not necessarily forever. Someone can always challenge it. You might always be wrong. That's fallibilism and the second rule whatever i do to establish my point should work for anyone else who comes along and looks at it argument evidence experiment it should work for everybody and those two things together make it almost impossible for any central authority to dictate the results of science or to end any argument using authority which used to happen all the time right you know the catholic church would say albigensianism is a it's a heresy And if you foment it, we kill you. That argument is over, God has settled it. It's actually the way humans think. Freedom of thought and inquiry, the freedom to make errors. In fact, the need to make errors is hardwired into the constitution of knowledge. And that's not true of any other system. So freedom becomes uh, an emergent property. And then last but not least, there's objective knowledge. The constitution of knowledge is the only system that can organize global cooperation of millions of strangers and hundreds of thousands of institutions to work on research problems like, for example, virtually overnight mobilizing labs around the world to decode a new virus over a weekend and then develop a vaccine a weekend later. Um, It is a fantastic mechanism for social organization in order to make knowledge. The secret is, Not that it doesn't make mistakes. It's that it makes mistakes incredibly quickly and it sorts through them incredibly quickly because it's got millions, hundreds of millions of minds working on that enterprise to find the needle in the haystack of new knowledge. And then crucially, it archives that knowledge. It doesn't throw it away. It introduces it into libraries, into literature, into footnotes so that you come along or I come along and we are taught this stuff and we can build on it. So we now have a 300-year accumulation of human knowledge, which will outlive us if all humans blew up, um, it wouldn't aliens could come along, decode our libraries and put all our knowledge to work. So objective knowledge is the first thing we get. So for these reasons, this is why I argue the constitution of knowledge is far in our way, the most important and productive social system that humans have.
1: Right, so you have the system that is able to produce coordination, is able to stop us from killing each other. Uh, why would anyone be against such a thing?
0: They've been against it since the beginning, always will be, tons of reasons. The Catholic Church was against it in Galileo's case because the Catholic Church believed that it was the final authority. It believed that it had the legitimate right to end the debate uh, and do that by imprisoning the guy who tried to open it. That's the way most humans think. We're natural authoritarians. I'm right. Chow is wrong. Why should I put up with that? Just last week, I was debating a, a young guy who's a fan of casual culture. And he says the reason is there are just some things that are so wrong, people shouldn't be allowed to say them like racism. Um, well, it is counterintuitive to say that speech that is wrong and sometimes obnoxious and just plain in error should not only be tolerated, but it is at the foundation of our epistemic order because even mistakes can be productive if they lead us to refute them. Um, so, So that's deeply counterintuitive, harboring error and toleration. The second problem is that the arguments never end absolutely for sure. So Donald Trump can say, I won the election, that's it. Nothing else to be said about it that's legitimate or possibly even conceivably true. People in the world of constitution of knowledge have to say things like, well, there is no evidence that the election was stolen because we, there is always that shadow of a doubt, right? We have to leave the accounts right. open <laughs> just a little bit. That's a big rhetorical disadvantage. Plus, it makes a lot of people uncomfortable because they think they know what the truth is. They don't think it's an ongoing argument. Um, So the lack of finality can be can be very disorienting. There's the fact that you need to listen to people that you disagree with. You're not allowed to insult them, which is the natural thing to do. Um, And then there's a very important fact in American life right now that facts are very inconvenient. If you're, for example, a demagogue, Mm -hmm. you want to exert political power. um, You want facts are inconvenient for you. So, for example, you're unhappy with the path of a hurricane. Well, what Donald Trump did was take out a Sharpie pen and announce alternative facts. (laughs) He drew a different hurricane path. This is what authoritarians, uh, demagogues, dictators have done from time immemorial. The facts are what I say they are. They are what are politically convenient for me. Well, the Constitution of Knowledge rules that behavior completely out of bounds. Uh, that is not where facts come. No one has the authority to do that. Well, that's going to make you unhappy if you're politically ambitious and, for example, want to put across the notion that you won an election that you actually lost. So, all of those people are enemies of these ideas, and by the way, they always will be.
1: It's it's interesting though because I I, I kind of find it hard to get in my head uh, that, that you would think, or that anyone would think that this would work, right? Like that, that Trump would get, I think, mean, you know, like, I think the Sharpie thing is a particularly good example. It's, it's just, why would, why would that work on anyone?
0: Right? Well, unfortunately, it does work on a lot of people. Um, this is maybe another branch of the conversation. So tell me if you want to get into disinformation and other forms of cognitive manipulation but that's what they're doing and um, humans are very vulnerable to all kinds of cognitive distortions and i argue that donald trump is the most sophisticated and innovative practitioner of the arts of disinformation since certain people that i won't name in germany in the 1930s he's really that good Doesn't mean he convinces everyone, but he creates enough confusion about what's true, what's not true. Is there even really a difference between truth and falsehood? Is it true just because Trump says it? He has publicly said, don't believe what you see in the media, believe what I tell you. Um, This is enough to cause rampant confusion. And of course, as we now see in the United States, where upwards of 60% of Republicans Believe the election was stolen. It turns out to be a very effective propaganda tool. So, alas, it works. I wish it didn't. We can talk about why it works, like you know, if you want to get into the psychology and all that. But yeah, let's let's dive story. into the
1: psychology because, uh, yeah, it is it is very counterintuitive, at least to me, that this would be that this would be effective at all. <laughs>
0: Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The fact that it is counterintuitive tells us, and it, and it is to me too, by the way, you know, plus I'm an atheist. I don't get why anyone would believe that, you know, Jesus Christ died and then was reborn and all that stuff or any of those religions. Um, so the objective fact is that most human societies and most human beings for most of history have functioned by naming authorities over truth. It could be a priest um, or a prince, or often it was an oracle or a text, and they would believe what that thing said because that's what everyone around them did. The coherence of the society depended on believing that. And we are wired not to find abstract truth. We are wired to stay harmonized in our grasp of reality with the people we depend on, our tribe, our family, so we look to them to understand what they believe, and if they all believe something, we're likely to believe it too, even if it's that I don't know Hillary Clinton is a pedophile who is operating a baby trafficking ring out of a pizzeria in Northwest Washington. Now that seems very improbable, but but it is how we're wired, and then you can manipulate that, um, as Russians have been doing for over a hundred years, and as someone like Goebbels understood with techniques like what's called the fire hose of falsehood technique. Donald Trump mm. uses this when he's a master of it. You just flood the zone with so many falsehoods, exaggerations, conspiracy theories, half-truths that no one knows up from down anymore. And every time one of these crazy ideas is rebutted, 10 more have already taken its place. I can get in a chapter and verse on how this worked in, in the Stop the Steal campaign, a brilliant masterly propaganda Russian-style mass disinformation campaign. So you can do that, or you can do what counselors do, which is by essentially socially punishing anyone who dissents, you can suppress those people. So when people look around, it looks like, well, no one really believes that they're, you know, I don't know, that, that they're really just two human sexes. I don't know if that's really true because no one's saying it we look to others. So if you manipulate the apparent consensus, you actually can manipulate what people not only will say, but what they perceive others to believe in their environment, and therefore what they think is plausible. So canceling turns out to be an age-old and very effective way to manipulate belief, make the improbable seem probable, make the probable seem unlikely. Um, Repetition. This is the one that Goebbels talked about and used so effectively. Trump does too. This is you simply, if you hear something again and again, it will burrow into your brain. So you're more likely to believe it, regardless of evidence, regardless of reality. It doesn't always work, but it's called the familiarity heuristic. If we hear something often, it becomes more plausible. Uh, There are dozens of these things. Conformity bias. That's the tendency to believe what you think people around you believe confirmation bias. We tend to believe what enhances our sense of ourselves and what's in tune, what harmonizes with our previous beliefs. Not only believe, but perceive. It distorts what we see, actually, and what we hear. So humans are just ridden with these cognitive vulnerabilities. The point of a constitution of knowledge is like the point of the U.S. Constitution. You've got all this conflict. You've got all these vulnerabilities. People fly off the handle. They use poor judgment. Both of these constitutions say, okay, so what we need is social structures, institutions and rules that will help guide us toward better behavior in any given situation. So we'll have to compromise over politics instead of going to war, or we'll have to try to persuade someone that we're right instead of just throwing them in jail because we can't. But that's why all those rules are there to protect us from the constant threat of being led awry. by our cognitive defects,
1: right. And something very important here is uh, Daniel Kahneman. You've probably heard of him, but for for the audience, he wrote this book, Thinking, Fast and Slow, which basically points at two types of uh, decision making. Right. There's the instinctive decision making, and then there's the there there's the uh, systematic decision making, and one of them, it's maybe easier to understand. At least, it's easier to understand this way: is that sometimes people react to news stories in the same way you react to like a cookie, right? You, 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 you can think things through. You can, you can think to yourself, okay, this cookie, it's not going to be great for me. It's going to, it, it's quite unhealthy, and I'm, I'm not really going to uh, enjoy it for very long. <laughs> but you, you still have the instinctive reaction where a lot of the time you just eat the cookie, right? A- and Right I, I think that the constitution thinking of the constitution of knowledge is sort of shifting shifting people towards the kind of uh, systemizing uh, way of uh, solving problems, discerning discerning truths. I think that I think that that's a good way of thinking about
0: it yeah that. that well that's exactly right um, and and when it works, this circles back to to an interesting comment you made five minutes ago. but when this works this shifting us to system two thinking, it works so well that it becomes habitual. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if if you're writing a paper, say, for your coursework or whatever you're doing, you're just not going to begin with the phrase, Jonathan Roush, you ignorant slut. <laughs> um, that's a joke from Saturday Night Live for those who don't know. I didn't make that up. Um, but it was a parody of a point counterpoint on TV in which the two talking has just said stuff like that. And the point was, that's funny because in real life, you'd never do it. Of course, it's not funny anymore because now in real life, people do do it. But the point is it would never even occur to you to behave that way. It would never even occur to you not to have footnotes and citations. You probably wouldn't think seriously about plagiarizing or making stuff up. And you would probably say something to me like, why would it even work for mm, someone yes. to take a Sharpie pen and change the course of a hurricane? Because, But that's only true because you and I have marinated in all of these institutions from the first day we go to school that train us in the constitution of knowledge, how to structure our thinking and our interactions in these constructive but actually very counterintuitive ways. Um, and the problem is... We're like fish in water. We don't see these institutions and norms when we work. We just assume they're natural. Well, it turns out they're not natural. And once they come under sustained fire from sophisticated operatives who understand how to take them apart, we suddenly find that an entire political party in America is unmoored from reality and seriously threatening the existence of our democracy.
1: Right. So let's use this term, and I think I want to hear you uh, expand for it, sophisticated. I don't know. It, Donald Trump does not seem he he seems many things but not sophisticated to me.
0: Um he has he has said and written things over the course of his career which to me indicate that he understands propaganda. There's his theory for example of truthful hyperbole, which you may have heard about. That's in The Art of the Deal where he says basically If you exaggerate enough, people will believe you as long as they think what you're saying is remotely plausible. Uh, And that's, of course, what he does. Um, I quote him in the book um, in an interview in 2004, where he talks in a quite informed way about I don't know if you want to get into the weeds, but in the 2004 presidential (laughs) campaign, there was something called the swift boat controversy. John Kerry was a war hero. Um, George W. Bush served in the National Guard as a way probably to escape having to go to Vietnam. This looked like it was going to be a campaign issue that could damage the Republicans. So some propagandists called Swift Swift Boat Veterans for Truth went right at Kerry with accusations that were false, that his medal was undeserved, that he had not shown the valor that he had shown and thus implanted serious doubts in a lot of people's minds. Cause most people don't know, right? They just hear all these veterans are saying he never really did it. And it's a bunch of lies. Um, Donald Trump was asked to comment on that. And I don't have the quote in front of me though. I could get it, but he tells an interview interviewer. Yeah. I really admired that. They understood what they're doing, which is you basically go right after it and you say the opposite. Um, and, the interviewer asked, well, but is that the right thing to do? And Donald Trump says, well, it it is if you can get away with it. Yes. Um, That said, you know, does it really matter whether he sits down at night and does elaborate charts and graphs to plan his disinformation strategy, or if he's just someone who's got a deep background in media and demagoguery and spent his whole career creating illusions that he was more successful than he really is? um, And just learned how the ropes work. Either way, the stuff that he's preying on, the important takeaway for you and me, is we are not immune to this. No humans are. These techniques are effective. They're sophisticated. They will always be with us. They have been weaponized going back 100 years now. Lenin used them. Hitler used them. Um, They've now been introduced into mainstream American democracy by the MAGA movement, which has shown it can use them without Trump. Um, so we're now going to be dealing with sophisticated disinformation tactics in the United States um, and the Western world for decades to come. And that is that is a challenge.
1: Right. I think taking that point to heart that it's very easy to uh, fall for them kind of if you're not paying attention is a really important one. I actually kind of worry about this. And this maybe is my orientation to why I don't really uh, don't really write about this information nearly as much as I did before nowadays is that it it's it kind of feels like you know that 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 like republican trope basically where where they like say like oh look at look at the large amount of drugs that was stopped at the border it kind of feels like that where it's like but but it was stopped but but they managed to stop it right that, that kind of is what a lot of the disinformation, uh, the social media disinformation, the kind of like viral fake stories uh, to me, like the other point is, is made right. And I think is made pretty successfully. And that most of the time, if there is a story, uh, especially like, I mean, this is just like looking at, looking at a lot of the Trump stuff. It, It just gets, you can just disprove it with like one link. Right. Or one one image of, of like the the Sharpie or it even like disproves itself. Right. To to me it seems like it, it seems like something that is that is actually like handled quite well by the constitution of knowledge.
0: Well, if you mean at the level of is it going to confuse any working meteorologist? The answer of course is no. Uh, <laughs> it doesn't even get to first base. Uh, one right. of the great tactics that liberal science discovered again quite innovative by historical standards is to get rid of a bad hypothesis you can just ignore it that's actually the best thing to do about hate speech 95% of the time or you know whatever the crazy stupidity is just stop paying attention to it and that don't the system the checking system doesn't even acquire it no one bothers to write journal articles about it Uh, It's a very effective way of handling it. And of course, (laughs) that's what a meteorologist will do if someone takes a Sharpie pen to a map. The problem, of course, is if the person taking the Sharpie pen to the weather map is the president of the United States. And if that person is in a position to do what he did, which is order his political appointees in the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to lean on the scientists to validate the false weather prediction which the scientists did not do, but um, the political appointees did, they tried to cast some doubt on the weather forecast, then you can begin to distort the scientific process throughout the government. And that leads to capricious, arbitrary, and dangerous decisions. Like what happens if the White House says, you know what, we think exposing people's veins to sunlight might be a cure for COVID. Go study that. What if the FDA Approves, what was it, invermectin, <laughs> hydroxy, whatever it was?
1: Yeah, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine. So uh, then those you were, begin to have yeah, good be- memories. <laughs> so
0: then you get distortions, politically enforced distortions in science. And we're seeing a lot of that. We're seeing Republican legislatures now that are beginning to try to tell universities what they can and cannot teach and instruct. So you get that kind of distortion. The second, more dangerous kind of distortion, even than that, is what happens with the public because a lot of Republicans say I am a lot more willing to believe Donald Trump, the leader of my group and Tra- Tucker Carlson, the leader of the network that I get most of my news from and rely on. Then I'm, than I'm likely to believe the national weather service because you know, they're, they're a bunch of libs, right? They're the deep state. And if you can, weather convince, service. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. A bunch of liberals, right? So, you know, like Brian Chow and Jonathan Roush may say this is ridiculous, but but that's part of the problem. We don't get it. We don't understand that, act- that normal people, regular people don't have time to do their own science. So they rely on trust and they don't rely on the same people that you and I rely on. They rely on different people. And those people are using highly manipulative tactics to distort reality and once this reaches a certain scale, then you've got a national governance problem. The way it reaches that scale is an entire political party begins to use these tactics and an entire political movement and an entire media establishment, and they go off into a rabbit hole, an alternative reality. And that is that is a real epistemic schism, and America is to a very large and dangerous degree there now. Hmm.
1: I think... It's interesting. Uh, I think that that uh, that that Trump quote about uh, "quote unquote" truthful hyperbole. Uh, there are other people as well who talk about this as like kayfabe, right? As like professional, uh, as basically the professional wrestling kind of dynamic where you play up, you play up a villain, you play up like these storylines. Like kind of everyone knows it's fake, but people go along with it. Uh, it is, it is very difficult to assess because from, from my vantage point, at least uh, certainly the, the right wing, the right wing media, the, the quote unquote, like elite, right. They, they kind of like see through a lot of the election stuff they see through. I mean, some of the other things it, it's kind of hard to, it, it's kind of hard to, uh, hard to judge, Uh but that there's still there, there's not a lot of i think like organization around it right do do you know do you know uh, richard hanania's idea of directed versus undirected lying no so so he makes this point he has this wonderful uh article liberals read conservatives watch tv which uh one of the main points in the article it 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 points out just a lot of uh kind of organizational and psychological differences between the main people who drive kind of left-wing versus right-wing culture uh and it, it is a wonderful piece but one of the points he makes is that uh republicans lie in sort of like very obviously self-contradictory and almost like self-sabotaging ways uh whereas left-wing lies are like much more like coordinated right so uh he, he gives us very good example of like the Democrats are the real racists and the Democrats, they passed, they, they supported segregationists. And well, that, well, that point is like, quote unquote, like factually true. Right. But that they'll make all, all sorts of these points that are like, not really, uh, not really in alignment with one particular narrative. They'll just like lie, lie at random, lie whenever it's convenient uh, for them. And I think Trump is kind of the epitome of this. Whereas like, uh, whereas especially I think social and like, quote unquote, woke uh, people, uh, they lie in very kind of consistent ways, they lie in denial of sort of basic uh, controls that you would have hours worked, uh, crime rate, that kind of thing on all sorts of statistics. And, vi- and of course, lying very thoroughly and regularly about stuff like genetics, right? But that they won't kind of like expand their ter- territory unless it's, unless it's in alignment with one of these like very specific narratives, right? And his, his point is that, uh, Richard's point is that one of these strategies is much more successful and it isn't the Republican
0: one. Well, I certainly disagree with his conclusion because um, the Republican strategy is obviously very successful, in my home state of Arizona, all of the statewide Republican candidates are election deniers who are promising one of them uh, to decertify the 2020 election. Secretary of State candidate has effectively all but said that they won't allow a fair election because Trump is going to win if he runs. Um, they've already done uh, fake audits there. So these, these people these people will be running. May, I shouldn't say will. We'll see what happens in November. Um, but, but these people potentially are running the government, right? That is a huge and very dangerous effect. I mean, think about the risk that puts democracy at. Um, their game plan in 2024, you know, unless MAGA wins outright, which it might. But if it doesn't, they're going to try to create epistemic confusion as they did in 2020, but multiply that by five about who really won and then say, well, we don't know who won. The election was rigged and throw it to the House of Representatives where Republicans, they believe rightly, will be able to select the next president. This is the end of democracy as we know it. So it is, I think, um, obtuse for anyone to say, well, that is less serious because it's more random. Uh, I think the point that you quote Hanania as making gets at something real, which is an asymmetry in the in the tactics and weapons that the left and right are using. Um, that's not because of anything inherent in the tactics. The left is perfectly capable of using Russian-style mass disinformation, and the right is certainly capable of doing canceling, and they both do both. But right now, the way the political realities are aligned is such that the left has comparatively greater power in elite cultural institutions like universities. And in an environment like that, what suits you to do is canceling. That's a very effective way of small groups with elite access to use that power to intimidate and silence dissenters, even much larger numbers of dissenters. So, you know, if you're at a university right now, you can get a lot of trouble for saying that, um, I don't know, make something up. Trans women are actually men, even if most people on campus actually believe that. Um, the right on the other hand has different weapons. They don't have that control over, um, elite culture, but they do have an entire alternative media ecosystem, which is capable of, of pumping out massive quantities of mis and disinformation. And will do that quite ruthlessly because it makes a lot of money. And they have a political party, which means they have politicians and they have the structures of the parties. Um, They even use lawsuits. That's what Trump's infamous 62 lawsuits were about over the 2020 election. That wasn't because they thought they were going to win because they had no facts. They lost essentially all of them. One of them, they got a little bit. Um, That was about pumping out mass falsehood. That was disinformation campaign, just using the courts as a channel to pump out confusing counter-narratives. So that's what they're doing because they can unfortunately what you and I need to take seriously is that these tactics are sophisticated and effective and they may not work on you and me right now but they sure work on a lot of people
1: it's interesting there are all of these figures who point to basically the uh, intermediation the the staffing uh, I think a lot of effective altruists now are focusing on this, uh focusing on on the importance of staffing and administrative positions, and really a kind of elite. And to me, like this is this is like the biggest failure. I think like this is actually like one of the things, if not the thing, I, I criticize Republicans uh the most on, is that like it is just completely incoherent. But I think if you look at that type of approach in order to get anything effective done uh, whether it's legally whether it's kind of running an election campaign even even kind of mounting those types of legal challenges against the election right once once again it, it, it looks to me like it looks to me like that like the thing it looks to me like the headline of like oh they seized a ton of drugs at the border right it, that's exactly what uh, the kind of stop the steal stuff looks like to me like they just failed horribly <laughs> And you had all of these uh, Republican officials coming out against them. You had all of these. Uh, you had the Supreme Court, right, the the majority uh, Republican appointed, uh, including two or three uh, Supreme Court nominees directly by Trump, depending on the case. They're they're not standing for this. Right. It's not just like it's not just like left wing elites that are not standing for this. Right. It's also the right wing elites that are not standing for this. It's exactly the people you would need in order to actually build a sort of organization, uh, like an organization of um, basically like. Basically, like a shadow administration, or like basically the the quote unquote machine that you would need, right? Like th- this is the thing that that I'm I'm telling Republicans is that like if you want to actually just like win on simple policy issues, you kind of like need your own like quote unquote deep state, right? You need your own like army of staffers and that kind of stuff. And I'm not I'm far from the only one who is making this point. And and so you ha- like it's 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 very hard to look at them. And think like, oh, this is a very sophisticated movement, or this is like a very, even like, even like scary movement, right? This is also the point that Hanania makes, is that like, the biggest problem is like very ironically, is just like rampant disorder and incompetence and not being able to do anything.
0: Well, I can think of a certain German revolutionary who looked pretty darn incompetent in a beer hall punch in the 1920s, but did they learn? Um, We see them, uh, the the majority of of Republicans who are on the ballot in November in state and federal races are, I should say state races, are election deniers. It is very difficult for any Republican to get through a primary without denying the results of the election election. Uh, and thus potentially delegitimizing the next one. I think the number is 147 Republicans voted to overturn the election in 2020, which is breathtaking. Nothing like that has ever happened in America. There were, you know, sometimes there'd be one or two protest votes. But that was it. Um, to say nothing of the violence that we've seen. And the as the January 6th committee has revealed, the multi pronged hub and spoke conspiracy coming from all directions to overturn the election by, among other things, substituting fake electors, causing confusion is what this is all about. If you can cause confusion, if you can convince people no one really knows the right answer and we don't really know the outcome of the election, it all needs to be tested more and checked more. And maybe we never will know, but, but actually our guys are the good guys, the other side are the bad guys. Then it's all up for grabs. It's jump ball. It's no longer about who actually won the votes. So that's what they're doing. And I guess if someone says, well, they didn't get anywhere in 2020, I'd argue, first of all, they got very, very far by all of those indicators, much further than I ever thought would be imaginable in America. And second, they're not going away. Like They're learning. Um, Counting on the courts, yeah, the courts have behaved very well. There have been some real standouts for the reality-based community that, frankly, saved our bacon in 2020, in the aftermath, and and the courts have been that. But the courts get their legitimacy from the people, from politics. If enough Americans on one side say, well, we're not gonna listen to the courts, the courts are just wrong. Um, they take to the streets, or they simply ignore the courts in a state like Arizona. They say, well, you know, we're putting in the governor that we think won, or we're sending the electoral electors that, that we think are right, and you can't stop us. Um, at one po- point, it becomes what Andrew Jackson said. Actually, he didn't, but the, uh, the story goes that when ordered to do something by the Supreme Court that he didn't want to do on Indian removal, he said, well, the court has spoken. Now we'll see who enforces the court's order. Mm. All of that, I've argued in the Atlantic, all of that is in store for us if we continue on the road we're going. So I guess I would urge listeners to this podcast. To take all of this much more seriously than just assuming that things continue um, continue on kind of institutional autopilot. I'm not sure that they will. The best way to make sure that they do, of course, is to take these threats seriously and bolster the courts, bolster the Constitution of knowledge, understand what these people are up to, um, figure out all the ways in which they're going to try to manipulate and distort. And try to get ahead of that. And there are lots of ways to do that, which we can talk about. There's lots of effective countermeasures, but we do have to understand what's going on in order to use them. Right.
1: Uh, I think like if if you if you're looking at this as something that is going to continue indefinitely, I, I think just like the math would make it pretty threatening that once that like at some point it'll create some kind of either. Um, Non either kind of like violent or uh, kind of legal tail events. But to me, like, it just seems a lot easier to, you know, win normally, right? Like, the amount of effort it would take to organize all of those legal challenges and to organize that amount of effort, like, the the Republican elites know that it's like, okay, you just need to channel to this towards, you know, winning legitimately. And then you win legitimately and I don't know, either it's Trump or either it's uh, different candidates, right? And that is that is the moment where you kind of move on. Uh, whether Trump himself will move on, that's I mean, I don't think he's predictable at all. Well, at this you're point. assuming don't they don't. Model you're assuming
0: Trump. they don't win illegitimately. Um, they have some important systemic structural advantages in the way. Where people live, where votes are are apportioned, Um, but they also have some pretty big disadvantages. Only I think once since 1988 have they managed to elect a president with a popular majority, and that means there are a lot of
1: 2004, right?
0: Correct. Yeah, and that means a lot of Republicans who increasingly believe that you know even. Joe Biden is a radical socialist endangering the future of our country forever, much less any other Democrat. The combination of having so much difficulty winning in a fair fight um, by popular vote and believing that everything you cherish will come to an end if the other side wins means that you'll resort to tactics in order to win that we have never seen before. And that is, in fact, what happened in 2020. Um, Now, you can say, well, they'll just stop doing that because it won't work. Okay, you're right. If it doesn't work again and again, um, if Republicans, if MAGA Republicans are defeated and defeated soundly, then they will learn. And politically, that's super important. That's what Liz Cheney is all about. She is out there saying every, not just some, but every election denier should be defeated. That should be our goal. We don't have the power to do that, of course, but that should be the goal. Political defeat in the end is what puts this vampire back in its coffin. What we don't know yet, though, Brian, is whether the Constitution of Knowledge and its allies have the power to do that. Because for all the reasons we've discussed, humans, including me, are not very rational. And if right. we believe the fate of the country and our group and our party and everything we believe in depends on stopping the Democrats from stealing the next election, which they will have done if they win, then there are all kinds of things we're going to do. So I would argue against complacency.
1: Yeah, I think I'm making the opposite point. So so the point that I'm making is that if Republicans just like win an election, right, just like win an election, like you know, fair and square, they they get more electoral college votes, right? E- even the midterms, I think it's kind of hard to you know take power after an election and then say like you know this election was fraudulent, maybe I should resign, right? That they'll have this. I mean, of course you don't. You you would rather them admit it, admit defeat, or. I guess, admit victory either way, right? Uh, ad- adhere to the results of the election either way. But to me, like to get the organizational effort that you would actually need in order to overturn an election just seems much harder than than no, winning the election. No, it's normally. the
0: opposite. Pumping out propaganda is extremely cheap and easy. Um, going door to door, gathering votes, expanding your coalition, uh, that's extremely hard. So the model here, uh, they talk about this. They've told us this. I'm not just making this up. You can ask them. The model for MAGA is Viktor Orban in Hungary, a name that I'm sure you and your listeners have heard. And when the Orban model is, okay, maybe you win fair and square the first time, uh, but why risk it the second time? So you pump out the propaganda and you figure out ways to put devious allies in important positions, like, for example, electoral counting positions in states like Arizona, and you create institutional obstacles for the other side by, for example, making it harder for them to vote. And you just find lots of ways to tip the playing field so that it's easier for your side and harder for the other side, which keeps you in power. There is, I think if you look at history, you will find very few examples of authoritarians who said, you know what, this isn't worth the trouble. It's just easier to be good Democrats. That's just kind of not the way history goes.
1: Wait, I I think we're maybe confusing two things here. To me, it's still it's still bad if you win via like basically propaganda via lying. But to me, that is on a different that is on a different order of magnitude than like rigging the electoral count, Right. I I think it's quite difficult to rig the electoral count. There are all sorts of legal challenges and the Republican and especially like the Trump establishment like you you look you saw the Rudy Giuliani press conferences they were they were not a, they were not a very good le- legal team and that you have basically like i mean you could say you could say it's like easier to to win via propaganda right but that's kind of that's kind of the point like that's kind of the release valve right is that like once again it would be better if 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 whoever won did not lie to the voters at all right but that is still you know getting getting people to vote for you and you know those votes being counted normally and then taking power like to me that does not seem like that seems like a problem but not like an existential threat right
0: well let's take a not hypothetical example Let's say in the 2020 election, you have two candidates, one is Democrat, one is a Republican. And let's say that fact-checking world looks at both these candidates, um, looks at all their statements that have been fact-checked, and that one of those candidates, the Democrat, um, 25% of her checkable statements are either mostly or entirely false. And you and I probably look at that and we say, well, that's not good, but Maybe in the heat of an election campaign, that's what happens. We wish he had been more truthful. So I can see being relaxed about that. But let's say that the other candidate, the Republican, 70%, 70% of what he has said that is checkable is mostly or entirely false. That's a different colored horse. That doesn't just happen because the person has slipped up or misspoken or been attentive. That is a deliberate campaign of disinformation in which most of what you say is false and you don't care. It's based on, I've mentioned the Russian firehose of falsehood tactic. That's what that is. Stephen Bannon, who is an advisor to Trump, summed that up very accurately. He said, uh, the real enemy is the media and we know how to deal with them. We flood the zone with shit. That creates an environment in which it becomes very difficult for people, even of goodwill, to make a rational decision because they don't know which end is up anymore. The only um, safeguard that we've had against the application of Russian-style mass disinformation in American politics is that people didn't do it. And they didn't do it because they thought there'd be a big political downside. No one would vote for them. You couldn't win if you do that. People would be shocked and horrified, and you'd have elite media gatekeepers who would slam the door on it, and the fact checkers would all yell, and it would become a campaign issue. Well, we know now that's not the case. We know lots and lots of people will vote for candidates to do that, and lots of confusion will reign, and 60 to 70% of Republicans will believe the election was stolen, that we no longer live in a democracy, even though that's not true it would be a serious mistake to be relaxed about that.
1: Right. The election stuff, yeah, the election stuff I think is by far the strongest points. Um, yeah, it's just, man. It, it, it I think is- you're
0: making a distinction without a difference. The case I'm making here is that the mass of um, Russian-style disinformation, other forms of of high-tech modern propaganda are really dangerous. The founders understood that, actually. They believed democracy was inherently unstable and needed not just a lot of constitutional safeguards, but a lot of moral safeguards, what they call Republican virtue, in the population to try to prevent these things from happening. Uh, And unfortunately, a lot of those guardrails have now been, been broken through. And so what I think my job is, to the extent I can do it, to the extent I can be constructive, is to try to figure out ways to establish that guard those guardrails. And you know, if someone wants to split hairs about is it propaganda, and that's always happened in politics, versus is it actual vote rigging and putting in people? I'm gonna say, you know what, I don't really care because it's all part of the same bucket of methods to undermine democracy.
1: Really? Okay. That's that's really interesting. Um so so there is some threshold of like reckless lying where where the kind of attempt to do it where where the kind of attempt to do it is is threatening to the same level i i didn't
0: oh for sure it's even okay, more threatening I
1: see. I see okay yeah
0: this stuff is is confusing destabilizing distorting all of those things um and uh yeah yeah it goes to the to the heart of democracy
1: right that's i remember there was this uh I don't remember where it was or how well replicated it was, but this, this finding, this paper that found that uh, the conspiracy belief uh, across, across kind of recent history has not really increased that much. Uh, I kind of, I kind of write about this, I think uh, in reference to uh, in reference to a piece by Jonathan Haidt, but that basically like, people being like incredibly wrong about things has been uh, more or less a norm. Uh, I do think, yeah, I do think there is something interesting or something different about the kind of media tactics that happen once you're on social media and once you're, um, I-, I coined this term like macro information. I'm not sure how useful it is uh, as opposed to micro information. And I say that's, that's kind of what's, uh, that's kind of where physics breaks down or like kind of like internet physics breaks down, uh, when you're trying to process just too much information. Uh, yeah, I, I really don't know the answer to to that question. I, I've not, I've not considered it as dangerous as, you know, overturning election, That seems to me, uh, quite a bit more dangerous, but, uh, yeah, I don't really know where to, where to go from here. I, I do want to be convinced though.
0: Well, um, Maybe I've maybe I've made some inroads on that score. Um, I think one of the big awakenings of the last five years, uh, you know, six six seven years ago, there really wasn't much much of a field. Even looking at um, disinformation, misinformation, um, epistemic or cognitive warfare, at least certainly not in a domestic context, it was thought of to be something that applied to international relations because foreign countries did it, but it would never work here. Now there is a large and burgeoning amount of scholarship and study going on saying, my God, it's happened here. It's working here. Um, It's part of a bundle of tactics that are well studied and well understood in places like Hungary, now Poland, Uh, going back to the thirties. What the F do we do? Um, that's, to me, it's a positive development. It's also positive if, you know, if I can, part of my job is to try to get people not to be relaxed about it and say stuff like, well, politicians always lie. There's nothing new about that. Or people have always believed conspiracy theories. Nothing new about that. The latter is certainly true. <laughs> like, you know, um, people, I, I think it's 40% of Americans believe in ghosts and 25% believe in astrology and, uh 2% believe the earth is flat and 7% are not sure <laughs> whether the earth is flat or round. So that's always gone on. <laughs> um, the problem is that this becomes very different when it becomes an organized weapon of politics in a major political party led from the White House by a sitting president for a period of four years who then proof tests it and shows that it works. Because now we're not just talking about you know random people like me walking around believing dumb stuff that's okay, you know, as long as we're running our lives in a reasonably respectable, law-abiding fashion. Then it's become politicized and weaponized um, by our core political institutions. And that's a different ballgame. Because, you know, then stuff starts happening like the Justice Department is supposed to decide who to prosecute based on the actual facts. Well, it, uh, we now know from a book by Jeffrey Berman, former head of the Southern District of New York Federal Prosecutors, the Justice Department under Trump attempted to order him to prosecute someone wrongfully for political reasons. And in order to do that, he would have had to make stuff up. Uh, He wasn't willing to make stuff up. He rejected that request. So they went to Maryland and they did it there. Uh, Michael Cohen in his new book, he was Trump's fixer until he flipped on Trump. That made Trump very angry. They sent the Justice Department after him. And they did that with facts that were not true, according to Cohen. I tend to believe him. But they called him on a Friday and said, here is a plea agreement. You're going to plead guilty on Monday morning, or else we're issuing an 82-page indictment of you and your wife. Oh, my. So once facts don't matter, once you can have the government Making up facts, then you can prosecute whoever you want. I mean, you know, we see this in Europe, all over the world. This is the beginning of tyranny when you can make up facts. So we mustn't treat propaganda and systematic, weaponized falsehood as just something that happens. We should see it as as just as much a threat as people going in and fixing the ballot machines, the vote counting machines. Anyway, okay. that's my claim yeah. you you may or may not accept it but but it's getting a hearing now and that's good
1: right i do think I, I do think there are there are many i don't know if I would say more I think most people are still not paying attention paying much less attention than, than I am, but I do think that is a, that is an increasingly uh common common perspective uh, actually this might be this might be of interesting uh, this might be interesting to you. I kind of wrote this down while I was doing prep. Have you ever heard the concept of an egregore? No. Okay, so uh, I think it originally is a kind of, like, occult term, uh, but there are some kind of internet internet theorists who who have repurposed it to, uh, and they call it, I think it's, uh, my friend BJ Campbell was on the show and he talks about this, uh, a closed self-updating epistemological network. Right. So essentially, you have this basically machine or organism made out of people on a social network that's that takes in information and outsources their beliefs to this kind of this kind of process right this this process where people uh gain status on social media and then they use that status to propagate messages back down and then that's how the that's how this aggregor like updates itself right it updates itself through basically like whatever is most popular within the influencers or the most central nodes of the network and i don't know i you can uh for my audience you can listen to that episode to see where we agree and where we disagree. But that that seems like an interesting frame of analysis on this, right? Because you have this situation where uh, these kind of closed self-updating networks are becoming much more common, are becoming kind of, you know, almost ubiquitous, right? And I think you made, a, made the case that this can be very threatening to the legal system, to uh, the political system, uh, and so on, right?
0: Yeah, I guess the goal is to have an open, self-correcting, uh, self-updating system. With is that right? As mm, opposed yeah. to closed, is that the fundamental distinction? Because otherwise, you're just talking about any any social epistemology.
1: Right. I think the distinction. So so B.J. Campbell uses the the metaphor of like uh, of Google Maps. Right. So a lot of people. Or I think by by kind of like self updating, he means and yeah man I, I wish I could have him on right now but uh, by self updating he doesn't just mean like it it comes up with new ideas but it's it's like a download it's like a software it's like a software update where you kind of automatically um, believe something tribally instead of actually evaluating it uh, he he basically draws the analogy to Google Maps where a lot of people don't actually know how to get from A to B. They plug it into Google Maps. They kind of outsource their their wayfinding to, to this app that's on their phone. And he argues that uh, many people do this with Twitter as well, right? So they they outsource, instead of outsourcing, you know, how to drive from A to B, or at least, like, which uh, which streets to take, they outsource, like, what to think about political issues, right? So,
0: yeah, I think that's, this- that's almost certainly true, though I don't think it's particularly linked to, for example, social media. Um, but you know, you, you frequently see, for example, religious communities in which the leader or uh, the leadership, it's often a group, will say they've had a revelation and mm. they're changing course. Uh, Vatican, for example, uh, the Mormons did this not long ago. The leader of the Mormon church had a revelation and said from now on we're going to be known by a different name and so forth. So, um, so yeah, um, and then that can be propagated different ways. So I'm sure, that, I'm sure that that's true. And it's also true that, as the political scientist Brendan Nyhan has said, he's looked a lot at these issues of belief and fact-checking and so on. Uh, there's a crucial role that are played by elites in signaling to rank and file what's within the boundaries of what's okay to believe. And that's been one of the big failures of the MAGA era, of course, that a lot of people who should have, for example, stood up on, um, after the election and said, no, the election wasn't stolen, as Mitt Romney and, and Liz Cheney and some other people did, went the other way and said, well, okay, if all these people say the election was stolen and my political career depends on agreeing with it, then, then I'll go along with that. Uh, And they say they go along with that. And that has this legitimizing role. And that becomes, I don't know about self-updating, but as in the the terminology that you're alluding to, I guess you'd say that that's kind of uploaded into the system. So yeah, I think something like that goes on. I'm not sure that's a particularly helpful way to think about it in terms of coming up with constructive fixes for it, but it sounds kind of in the ballpark of right to me.
1: Yeah, so I think... I think the main distinction here between especially between the pre-social media level of analysis is that the the sort of evolving nature of it becomes very important right so uh his example of this is with um yeah I'm not sure I'm I'm not sure about his specific Trump example although he definitely has he definitely has many of them he has an example of kind of uh he has an example of the social justice uh i'm not sure how uh, how you would refer to it but basically like this kind of like uh uh in their words intersectionality right where Uh, Not only do you have to uh, uh, not only do you have to believe that uh, all of the racial disparities are caused by racism, but you have to do the same thing for feminism, you have to do the same thing for uh, for trans and so on and so forth, that there is these kind of like really all, all things considered like not that correlated factual claims about the world and let alone getting one of them wrong right you kind of update them all in like immediate clusters that uh, and and the the the, the inclusion of trans here is particularly important because that's kind of like a novel thing Right. That is the thing that gets like automatically added on top of the network, on top of the existing kind of infrastructure that exists there. And I mean, like even Stop the Steal is kind of a good example of this. Right. There was there was Trumpism before. There was Trump. There was all of the claims that you were supposed to believe if you were if you are a Trump supporter. And then and then here here's another one that's that's at least in my judgment, quite more extreme than 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 the others. And that gets kind of like that gets kind of updated. That's kind of downloaded immediately, right? That that's where the analysis uh, pays off here.
0: Yeah, I'm still not sure I see the cash value of that, but it sounds right directionally. I don't think it requires social media um, at all. In fact, Stop the Steal did not really lean much on social media. It used conservative media, courts of law, politicians, um, and is also correct though. I think that. We see this in uh, university context and cancel culture where you get these relatively small numbers of, of outspoken elites who legitimize certain views and delegitimize others. And then this kind of gets communicated as, OK, well, here's here's what people like us now believe. Um, it's a mistake to think that that's altogether coherent or rational on on any given day. But, but yeah, um, but but this is well known that if you manipulate elite opinion or uh, that you can then you can then bring in a lot of other people along with that. Um, So I've, I've no objection to any of that. I guess I would just say, well, let's go investigate how that happens, how the dynamics work.
1: Wait. So that kind of speed of, of updating, you think that this happens or actually this might be a good, good test case of it. So do you think the stop the steal strategy that that thing that could have worked even pre-social media.
0: Oh yeah, of course. Really? Okay, that's that's yeah. that's, well, very that's obvious. To me. It didn't primarily propagate on social media. Huh. Uh, Trump was okay. remember Trump was off Twitter after hmm. January sixth. Um, hmm. No, the big propagators there were cable news, talk radio. Uh, I mentioned the courts of law. Republican politicians were huge. Politicians. According to the best evidence I've seen, social media isn't even number one in terms of disseminating mis and disinformation, um, especially at least the conservative MAGA type stuff. It's probably number three. Number two is cable news, especially Fox News, which which has a primacy, a predominance on the right that, that no single source of information enjoys, for example, on the left or in the center. Um, and is just constantly broadcasting all the time, and imbibed in this stuff. You know, they they fired their political analyst for correctly calling Arizona. Right?
1: That's like I not got fired.
0: Yeah, Man. he got fired. Well, technically, they eliminated his position. They restructured him. <laughs> um, so uh, and he just he just Chris Steyerwall, He just wrote a book about that. Huh. Um, so that's not how mainstream media behaves. You don't get fired for getting it right you get rewarded for getting it right. Um, so that's number two, but number one far and away is still politicians. They have always been the leading megaphones uh, for propaganda, information, and disinformation, and they still are. Trump is example one of that. They've got all kinds of ways of communicating, but they are also got Republican elected officials up and down the line who are echoing this stuff. So no, you didn't need to be on Twitter to know that that uh, the people in your social group believe that the election was stolen.
1: Right. That seems, yeah, there was this book, I think it was in the kind of 2018 era, uh, network propaganda. I don't remember uh, the authors off the top of my head, but yeah, it, it, it was one of the kind of Yo-Kai like... Yo-Kai Benkler niche, and his
0: group at Harvard.
1: Right. Yeah. It was yeah one they of actually the kind of, did a good empirical
0: yeah. work where they actually tested these alternative networks and looked at what happens to a conspiracy when you drop it into mainstream media where it tends to suppress it after a couple of news cycles versus what happens if you drop it into conservative media, which tends to amplify it.
1: Right. Yeah. And, and uh, their, their work, I think also uh, bolsters, I don't think they did anything on, or at least I don't remember anything about uh, originate stuff originating from politicians specifically but yeah, many of the many of the uh conspiracy theories they found were uh primarily through cable news.
0: yeah, yeah, I think you know i'm I'm certainly not averse to talking about the downsides of social media, and I have a whole chapter on that in my book. but I've found I push people away from that because social media is the shiny new object that people want to talk about, um but the tactics that we're talking about canceling firehose of falsehood, mass disinformation, um, repetition, heuristic, and so forth. These are old and they can be used through any type of channel, whatever's handy at the moment. And so f- focusing just on social media, which admittedly is very good, it's custom made for propagating falsehood on a large scale. But, but focusing mainly on the medium and not on the, on the strategy, on the tactic, is a little bit like focusing entirely on what kinds of artillery um, an army is using, rather than how to emplace and use them.
1: That's that's still, I think, a very a very strong claim that those tactics would have succeeded post or sorry pre pre social media. So so like it was just kind of kept at bay by the good graces of of all of the politicians and journalists. And I don't know that that seems. That that seems kind of not really not really believable to me, right? It's it, to me it seems like if they, these are successful tactics, then people would have you know succeeded with them already.
0: Well, no one tried. That's Trump's breakthrough. He's the first the first politician to attempt to use Russian style mass disinformation. Now that's not quite technically true. One could argue that in the 1850s, Southern secessionists used similar tactics. They wallpapered the South with propaganda claiming that the North was spoiling for a war to come down, invade the South, and force all the white women to marry black men. Um, And we actually know who did this. Um, Their names have associated with it, Uh, and it worked. It created war fever in the South, even though a majority of Southerners did not want to secede. got overridden. So those tactics worked then. um, So you could argue that that's a precedent. But certainly since the 1850s, there is no example of a major political candidate, much less a presidential candidate, who's 70% of the checkable things that he says are false. In office, you, you remember the first thing he did, day one, hour one, minute one, He lies about the size of the crowd at the inauguration. (laughs) He lies about whether it rained. Both obviously easily checkable facts. Anyone with eyes can see that it rained and that his crowd was smaller than Obama's. So why is he doing that? Um, To you and me, that seems irrational because why would anyone believe that? Well, he's asserting sovereignty over truth. He's putting himself on record that now he will be the judge of what is true and what's false. Don't believe your eyes. And by the way, he'll change it tomorrow. It's whatever suits him. And then he proceeds to do that. The count is over 30,000 lies during the course of his presidency, according to Washington Post fact checkers. That's 20 a day. And you can quibble about the exact number. There's nothing like that in American history. So that's the problem. The reason this didn't occur in the past is that people didn't do it because it was stigmatized and no one understood it and didn't realize how it would work. And then you get the injection into the system of a student of propaganda, conscious or unconscious or both. Um, and not only do they work, um they're massively disruptive. So now we gotta live with them. That's the real problem.
1: Huh. Yeah, I, I think Yeah, this just comes very counterintuitive to me. I think the the sort of uh math bias, scientific bias tech bias, people like to, especially people I'm friends with, like to look at like systematic explanations for things, right? That's why a lot of people are looking at social media. Um, yeah, I haven't really considered that, like people just didn't, didn't try it. Uh, yeah. And I don't know, I don't know specifically um, the kind of precise history of every politician since since the 1850s, yeah, I should. Well, I should definitely write me a letter. For,
0: send me an email if you can find one who did something like what Trump did. I mean, George Wallace was a populist demagogue in the 60s and 70s. He didn't do this. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not monocausal. A bunch of things happened at once. It was a perfect storm. Uh, social media certainly helped Trump, Twitter and, and all that. But remember, he's off Twitter um, starting in January of, of 2020. And Facebook and Twitter, right through the election, before the election, are um have created rules against election disinformation. So they're doing their best to suppress it, something of course conservatives complain about. So they're already trying to push that stuff downward and it doesn't matter. I mean, maybe it matters a bit. But um it's 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 the strategies and the willingness to use them. That's the game changer.
1: Huh. Yeah, what do you think of what do you think of the the vaccine issue? Because that was that was something very interesting. I know a lot of conservatives um, observed that and, and looked at it and thought, "Wow, Trump can Trump can be overruled by something, and it's possibly even dumber."
0: Well, you know, there's kind of this fireball of stuff that combined: stop the steal, MAGA, QAnon, and vaccine suspicion, Mm -hmm. vaccine conspiracy theories. And they all kind of merge at some point. You get this big constellation of, you know, this kind of rolling cloud of stuff that's going on. But vaccine misinformation is, excuse me, is interesting because uh, there's a scholar named Renee Duresta, and she's actually, I think I've heard her tell her story. And she's kind of just an ordinary person though, obviously a super smart, ordinary person. And um, she has a run in with anti-vaxxers in California and the harm that they're doing to like her kids and stuff in her school. And so she gets interested in this and she starts sleuthing online and tracing their networks. Now, this is back in 2014. This is before anyone is really thinking in a systematic way about um, information warfare, cognitive warfare and its tools. And what she discovers is that there are networks of vaccine misinformants who are very shrewdly using a combination of manipulating search engines, um, creating nodes in social media and using the algorithms, establishing influencers in key places, and using other tactics so that if a random person gets online and looks up vaccination, they will encounter a wildly disproportionate amount of credible seeming vaccine misinformation, vaccine skepticism. And they will conclude that anti-vax is much more prominent and plausible than it really is. And you remember what we said closer to the outset about if you can manipulate the apparent consensus, you can manipulate what people think is plausible and even what they believe. And that's what they were doing. Um, And she documented this, she's written studies on it, she's now gone on to be a major figure in the field. But what we now know from that is in 2014, what we didn't realize was that this was not just a few quirky people out there having some lulls, that this was would turn out to be the test bed for using these these tactics on a much larger scale, not just for anti-vax, but for a bunch of other things which you've alluded to. And that's been the real wake up call.
1: Um, right. So uh, I know we're getting close to your time constraint. The last question of the show, this is always the last question of the show, uh, is what is something that is too much order and needs more chaos and something that has too much chaos and needs more order? And I know we talked about the latter a lot, hopefully something uh, that we haven't talked about quite yet.
0: Too much order? So we've talked about chaos that needs more order. I'd also add Stronger, more capable political parties to that. That's another conversation. Something with too much order that needs more chaos. I don't know. You know, I might take a pass on that because I think the structure of our world right now is that the biggest problems have way more to do with chaos than order and figuring out how to create structures and institutions. So, I mean, I think I'm, I might say that those cases just don't seem as important right now of too much structure. But maybe if you prompted me, I would think of something like that.
1: Right. In that case, what would uh, you since say, we have a,
0: that question, where is there too much order and not enough chaos?
1: Oh, uh, that is, yeah, I've never been asked to answer my own question before. That's a good huh, one. A first. Uh, well, uh, something that I have talked about a, a lot is I think that just... Uh, the internal processes of the FDA are far too risk averse. I do not know if you call that order. I talk about this with, for three hours with v Auschwitz, but that um, they should have approved the vaccines much earlier. That yeah, they should but have that's made not a order versus judging. chaos.
0: That's just about, I think, by I assume that by order versus chaos, you mean there's just too much. The whole regime is way too structured.
1: Mm. Uh, I guess, I, I think someone else has said this. It. Was it was it Brian Kaplan? I'm not sure that edu- that uh, early education is is far too ordered. I think there are there are some uh, there are some results that I think are quite quite accurate about free play now. Uh, I think I forget her name. Uh, this was mentioned in Jonathan Haidt's book. Uh, uh, Lenore Lenore Scenese, Uh She's doing free range kids. Uh, that seems very convincing to me. Yeah, I, th- I think early childhood needs a bit more chaos.
0: Yeah, I think I'd agree with that. That seems like a good pick. Can and, I just uh, adopt your pick? Sure. And uh, the, the follow-up no, I want to I'm not to sure I call those is, things chaos necessarily. I guess the problem with that formulation is is chaos can mean rampant, anarchic, unstructured situations without guardrails. But it can also just mean Regulatory systems that allow for more play, more choice, more creativity, and if you mean the latter then it it becomes a lot easier to come up with examples. And yeah, I, I think I mean, school choice would would be one of them
1: and uh, if you have time, the other thing that I wanted to ask is what what do you want to see changed? I mean this can be yeah an entire whole new conversation, but uh what do you want to see changed with the political parties
0: well, there I would refer um your listeners to a free mini book. It's really just an article, but it's on Amazon for free. It's called "Political Realism: How Hacks, Machines, Big Money, and Backroom Deals Can Strengthen American Democracy." And it argues: um, I'm I'm part of a school that we kind of call ourselves political realists, and we believe that there are lots of structures and practices that have to go on to organize politics that come. In between candidates deciding they'll run and voters deciding they'll run, they'll they'll vote for them. These are the people who do the backroom negotiations in Congress to try to put the compromises together. They're the people who vet the candidates and try to figure out, okay, who's a sociopath, um, who should not get money and party support. Um, they're they're doing all of this behind the scenes work, and that we spent the last fifty years making that job difficult to impossible. So, no other country. Has the primary system where essentially party insiders and professionals are bystanders in choosing their own candidates. That's just crazy. No one else does that. And it has failed massively in the United States in 2016, Um, almost failed for the Democrats in 2020. And so we're saying, you know, the problem is not, the main problem is not corruption. Um, or even lack of choice. The main problem is chaos, and we need to figure out how to revive some of these structures that help create some guardrails, some incentives for, as you say so rightly, system two in politics. Is that what it's called, system two?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah. Well, so f- check
0: that out. You can put a, a link to it. There's also an Atlantic article I wrote back in 2016 called "Why American Politics Went Insane" and a bunch of other stuff I've done more recently. Basically, trying to tell people, hey, let's not be so quick to dismantle all of these, all of these people, and all of these institutions that are organizing politics.
1: Mm, interesting. Yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. It was it was I great. enjoyed it. That was my interview with Jonathan Rauch. As I alluded to earlier, it really went down some lines that I found were truly unexpected. His idea that the tactics and the playbook of Trump are not exclusive to the social media era, that is something that I've rarely ever heard, even among the anti-Trump crowd. And that, along with many other ideas, were what I think made this conversation so valuable. We could get down to really the baseline assumptions and fundamental disagreements that really project forward and create such differing interpretations of the modern complex systems that we face every day. It's unfortunate, too, that I didn't get to go further on different lines of inquiry. I had an entire section of my prep dedicated to scientific funding that I didn't really get to talking about. Uh, The unfortunate time control. It is very unfortunate that this podcast was only around two hours long. I think I remember saying something similar uh, about Tyler Cowan as well. I did quite a bit more preparation than uh, the time actually allowed for. That being said... I can totally understand if you think I didn't push back on certain areas enough, or if you think that I spent too much time on some other specific details. But, you know, that's part of what it's like to live in the present, although I'd still love to hear uh, how you think I could do better. Also, I did allude at the beginning of the episode that I was speaking with John Iskonsis next episode. That's right, and that's actually a special episode that will be released uh, later this week. I think probably this Friday. And the reason why it's a special episode is that we had a bit of a scheduling problem, and we decided to just record basically a one-hour-long extended prep call. So it's just a very long, extended uh, introduction to John's thoughts. Uh, You'll be able to see in the show notes of that episode much of his intriguing writing. And hopefully it's it's only the beginning of what's a much longer podcast episode to come. But you'll see that shorter one-hour version on Friday, and then another normal From the New World episode uh, next Monday after that. Hope you guys tune in, and of course, subscribe if you want to get those episodes. And as always, man, I forgot to mention this until now. The best way you can help the show is always to tell a friend, whether it's online or in person. Odds are, you're interested in this podcast, you have a friend who has the same interests as you, and you're not only helping us, but you're actually helping your friend, because you're giving them uh, some way of learning more about the world, some way of just having a good time, whatever you use podcasts for, they can have that as well. And if you do that, you'll also
0: help the show. And of course, subscribe, and see the episode next week.